Keep your car looking its absolute best year-round with 303 Cleaners and Protectants. 303's revolutionary graphene nanospray coating gives you professional protection in a simple, easy-to-use formula. It will keep your car's paint protected for up to 12 months and give an insane level of depth and gloss. You can also use their brand new 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine throughout the year. It can even be used for quick cleanups of light dust and fingerprints in between washes. For a one-two punch to keep your car licking its best, look no further than 303's line of graphene products. 303 Graphene Nano Spray Coating to protect and 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine. Both products are available now at Advanced Auto Parts, AutoZone, and select Walmart locations. Visit 303radio.com for more information. The difference between an agent and a Realtor is real. Realtors have the expertise to find exactly what you need and the ethics to do the right thing, even when it's the harder thing. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. That's who we are. And now, please welcome... It's time for the Bradford Files, right now on WEEI.com. Welcome to another edition of the Bradford Files. Today, I have my colleague, the excellent, excellent Alex Beer. Welcome, Alex. I can't believe that I am fortunate enough to be a guest on this show. Thanks for having me, Rob. I I don't know how we got him, but, you know, (laughs) we went down the hallway and there he was. Uh, So we're going to be diving into Red Sox season, and as we have really in the entire offseason, there really hasn't been a break, but the first thing we're going to do as we head into spring training is take a quick review of what we just witnessed in regards to what was one of the craziest off seasons in recent memory and a different off season because I think that one of the things when we say crazy we think of huge transactions but this was just crazy in the sense of every single day something else happened. Yeah it's a it's a good way of putting it because uh, first of all it started with essentially organizational instability in some respects there was a lot of continuity to be sure because Theo Epstein left, Ben Charrington, who's been working with him incredibly closely for you know almost a decade, ends up being the guy who, and who takes over for him. So there's philosophical continuity, but at the same time, you still had a general manager leaving. You still had a manager leaving who had been this really kind of bedrock of stability for the Red Sox for, what, eight years. Mm. Uh, and you had this far-reaching search. You had uh, uncertainty about which direction they were going in terms of replacing some departed personnel like Jonathan Papelbon. Yeah. So I would say that, yeah, there there were a lot of foundational elements of the Red Sox that ended up leaving and being replaced over the course of the offseason. So from that standpoint, it was more tumultuous uh, than other offseasons typically are. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, is that I think that Ben Sherrington would, would say this, is that it was unique in the sense is that there had to be some foundation building before the rest of the stuff was taken care of. And whether you look at as that as putting them behind the eight ball or not, but that was a reality. You had, as you mentioned, the manager search. You had, organizationally, you had international scouting. You had the training staff. All of that had to be turned over in their eyes, and that was their priority. Now, they couldn't do a whole lot because of financial restraints, but this was clearly the priority. And if you view, I think, Alex, I don't know how you feel about this, but if you ask them what, looking back at this offseason, what were the big moves were, it wasn't Cody Ross. It wasn't David Ortiz signing. It was 
building what they perceived as a new foundation. Which makes a lot of sense for Ben Charrington because he's an infrastructure guy. You know, he was the guy who really put together the nuts and bolts of the so-called scouting and player development machine and figured out what that meant to its minutest detail and built up a really, really successful farm system and draft process and helped uh, to build, you know, the draft process, helped to build the international process, worked extensively in all of those different respects in order to create systems that could allow success. And that's something that I think that he thinks a lot about. And so it makes a lot of sense that as the general manager, a lot of his time was devoted to that in this first offseason, mm-hmm. even as he was obviously in the middle of trying to think how uh, how different moves impacted each other and how to build out the roster. But I, I think you're right. There was uh, This was an offseason about infrastructure um, with the Red Sox organization, and we're going to see what the end result is of that. Yeah, and uh, there's, so there's a couple questions we want to get to, and, and I'll let you lead into them because you're going to lead into them. Well, I'll uh, I think let's kind of let's kind of think about some of the personnel stuff because it's really difficult for us to get a handle on exactly what the impact is of the medical moves, what the impacts are of the training staff moves because you know we we don't have really a mechanism through which to judge them mm. or judge that landscape. So um, I, I guess it is worth kind of think, sinking our teeth into they've built this infrastructure. What did that lend itself to in terms of the uh, in terms of the personnel? So um, the first move of the offseason that occurred in terms of players was Jonathan Papelbon waved goodbye. Uh, he had uh, with a fifty million dollar watt smile, and so uh, <laughs> there's a new look bullpen. Goodbye to Papelbon. Goodbye, perhaps uh, in all likelihood to either a Sevis or Bard. I think it's unlikely that both of them ends up in the rotation, but mm-hmm. there's a pretty good shot that one of them ends up pitching for the Red Sox as a starter this coming year. So the Red Sox moved to replace those two guys by acquiring Andrew Bailey and Mark Melanson. Your thoughts? Well, you look back at the Papelbon situation, and you know we, we can talk about their interest in him or, or all the drama that led up to him, but the reality was they knew for a while that they were not going to re-sign Jonathan Papelbon. And it would have been nice in a perfect world to have the guy who had been closer for the longest tenure of any pitcher ever in that role for the Boston Red Sox to stay and continue what he's doing um, because you want to have the best players at each position. But it just wasn't feasible. You know, I think – I don't know if you you would agree with that, but it just – they knew what the what the budget was going to be coming in, and that was not going to be part of the budget. I mean, honestly – lost in that equation in that presentation they had assumed for a long time that Papelbon was going to be gone if his agents hadn't done a really good job of getting him signed with the Phillies before the new collective yeah. bargaining agreement had taken place then Jonathan Papelbon might have been in you know in a pretty rough position along the lines of the one that Ryan Madsen found himself in where he ended up signing a one year eight and a half million you know, dollar deal or K-Rod or or you know some of these other guys and and you know we we talked at the time about the Levinsons who are Papelbon's agents how they typically got their guys signed early, especially relief pitchers. They did it the year before with Joaquin Benoit. And but this year became, as you point out, I think it became even more important. Cinco Ocho should give them a bigger cut than uh, than the typical agents. No, yeah. they did a they did an incredible job, and you you see people you know kind of criticizing that as perhaps the worst move of the offseason by any team. Not because Papelbon's a bad pitcher; obviously, he's great. He has a great track record. He's done extraordinary things, but because it was just a huge overpay relative to anything else that happened in the relief market. And so, Jonathan Papelbon's making twelve and a half million dollars a year for the next four years. Meanwhile, the Red Sox got Andrew Bailey and Mark Melanson, who between them. Are going to make about four million dollars yeah. for the coming season, and really, like over the life of their entire time in Boston, 
a guy like Melanson is probably not going to see that much more than $12.5 million yeah. for the next five seasons. So. Well, the, the Melanson thing is, to me, is very interesting. And obviously, you start thinking about it more because because when they trade Marco Scuro, you said, well, you had a built-in guy who perceived as a starting shortstop in Jed Lowry. All of a sudden, Mark Melanson becomes a very important part. He was a very important part before because anytime you have an eighth-inning guy, he is an important guy. But when you view it through, you trade it away. What really is your starting shortstop and what some people think is a middle-of-the-rotation, potentially middle-rotation guy. Maybe more back-of-the-rotation sure, for Ireland. but yeah. a major league starting pitcher. And, you know, maybe not, but the potential to be that guy. Then it becomes like, well, the guy that you got back, even though he's under cost control for a while, he better be good. And... And by all accounts, you know, he has some potential to be that eighth inning guy, but he better be good. Well, I think that there are some people, you know, in the industry, and I'm talking about guys who are with teams other than the Red Sox, Mm -hmm. who say that Melanson is actually very underrated. His Mm -hmm. stuff is tremendous, you know, really played well in, uh, in, you know, a pretty bad situation in Houston. Uh, I've, I've heard, you know, some people suggest that he's, you know, legitimate closer material. And if they have that guy in front of Bailey, one, as a regular as a regular rule of thumb or number 2 someone who's able to fill in for Bailey and kind of you know and kind of limit the amount of uh, the amount of expected workload on him because he hasn't been a guy who's proven his ability to stay healthy year after year mm. Andrew Bailey that is yeah. then that's a really valuable thing if they have multiple closing options the so-called uh, and much anticipated uh, committee of closers <laughs> for, that the Red Sox thought that they might have last year that never materialized um, that's a pretty important equation for well, them to have it, depth to you know late innings, uh, a depth of of options for the late innings. Well, and and you talk about that. You when we're talking about potential closers, and we you know we talk about the the top of the rotation guys, but really where the the team is in flux and and what they worked on in the off season here is that kind of that space between the four starter and the seventh inning, and. Uh, and maybe some of the eighth inning because we can we know that Bailey's going to pitch in, in the ninth. We know that Melanson is slotted in to pitch the eighth. We know that Beckett or at left. least Melanson at least like kind of the Bardish role sure. of like the critical right. late inning yeah, situation. Yeah, the, the quote unquote eighth inning pitcher, yeah. which can pitch in the seventh. But then, okay, you know who is going to step up in that space between, which are very important spaces, and we we look at okay, who is going to be the other quote unquote eighth inning guy with Melanson. I think that I, for me, it's a Seves. You know, I, I listen. He could jump in and, and be a great starter, but he showed me enough where he can pitch an eighth inning or that seventh inning. Um, we don't know what to expect. I'm taking Jenks out of the equation. Is that fair for now? He's a wild card. At some point, I think that they are hopeful that at some point he'll be able to be a part of that late inning sure. mix. But there's no certainty. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and so so who are the guys that could potentially be there? Another wild card, I think, in this situation is Vincente Padilla. Because of the guys that they got, went out and got in regards to the potential fourth or fifth starters, he is the one guy in my group, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, that has the potential to maybe pitch in the eighth inning or seventh seventh inning um the potential yes although the other guy who i would point to in uh in that group of guys who are going to enter camp as starters is felix dubrant who was supposed to be a significant contributor in 2011 mm-hmm. and health problems held him back uh I, I view dubrant and padilla honestly as kind of comparable wild cards dubrant is out of options uh he is going to have to 
prove that he's ready for a big league role out of the shoot. But that's a really good left-handed arm that uh, that you know you that has a, a, a nice three-pitch mix that could be an impact contributor. Um, and Padilla, you know, he does have the stuff to be a reliever. He was going to be a reliever with the Dodgers in 2011, and was for his was whatever. Cl- he was a closer for for like a week, two weeks, yeah, before he had weird neck problems that yeah. no one has ever. That <laughs> led to an unprecedented surgery that, yeah, uh, yeah that makes him a, a giant, giant question mark. But yeah, I, I think that there. Well, I, I think that it's. I, I do want to go back to the idea that it's almost a given to me that either Bard or Aceves ends up back in the bullpen. It may be both at some point in the course of the year. So I, I think that one of those two slots is being that third late innings. Well, he, I think he has to be, right? I mean, I, I mentioned you know Bailey, Melanson, and then you almost have to have one of those guys be a part of that equation because while you have some potential, you mentioned Dubront, you know, Padilla, potential guys who could fit that mold. Jenks is another potential guy. Franklin Morales. He had some good outings last year. Yeah, Franklin Morales. Yeah, certainly part of the bullpen, but – what you need is another guy with a little more certainty in terms of pitching that eighth inning along with Melanson. And those guys that you mentioned, those are the two guys who make the most sense. This has been a circumlocutory approach to our uh, discussion I was of just the bullpen. Gonna, I was just going to say that. Indeed. But I think that uh, you actually have have segued us very nicely. Thank you. Uh, to uh, to the question, what, what do you make of the rotation? Because obviously that has implications for the bullpen, but the Red Sox have decided to court a bit of uncertainty at the back end of their uh, of their rotation, they have what seven thousand guys who are going to be uh, who are going to be competing for uh, for the number four and number five starter spots. You have you know Beckett, Lester, and Buckholtz are the givens, mm-hmm. and then entering camp, they they anticipate, or at least we've heard that they're probably going to be stretching out. Let's let's go through the laundry list of guys. You know Bard, Aceves, Carlos Silva, Aaron Cook, Vince, Vicente Padilla, uh, Dubrant is another one. Andrew, Andrew Miller. Miller. Um, so do you think? I, I guess you know. We'll talk more in a subsequent podcast previewing spring training about that group competing at the back end. But uh, is the rotation is this the right approach with the rotation to allow these spots to be kind of wild cards? I don't think it's an ideal approach, and I think that they would admit that that if they could go in even with an Oswald. I mean, you, there's no everyone gets all hot and bothered about Roy Oswald, but. <laughs> You know, because that's, because it's a name. It's very personal, Rob. Yeah, well, you know, it's the Mississippi thing. Yeah. The uh, but he's a name, and he's done things in the past, and he's certainly more of a certainty than anything they have. Um, but you don't know what he would do translate to the American League. That said, that I think that the team in a perfect world would like some more certainty heading into camp. They're living. They're they're okay with living the life of without that kind of certainty. But I think in a perfect world, that's how they would view it, um, because all these names that you just mentioned—that it just isn't the case—and this is the casualty in my mind, the biggest casualty of this spending that we we're talking about throughout the off season. This is the ca- like Corota. They like Corota, sure, but could they have paid ten million dollars? Did they want to pay ten million dollars for Corota? No, they didn't want to allocate that much to it, and. And that's the perfect guy that you say, hey, you know what? He might not be an ace, but he's a really good four starter. Right. And same with Edwin Jackson, who yes. would have been a really nice fit because of the certainty. Oswald's interesting because the stuff is good. The stuff is legit. You know, we heard scouting reports that uh, that late in the year, it really came back after he kind of got his back right. But there's the uncertainty with him about how healthy he's going to be able to remain over the course of a full season 
uh, and especially pitching in a more taxing league. There is some uncertainty with Oswalt that I think is different than the uncertainty that goes into this group of, you know, of we've I, I think we isolated about seven guys competing for this uh, for for the for the rotation. I mean, it is, it is interesting to me thinking about how you structure championship winning rotations. And I do think that you need to have, you know, four legitimate starters um for most teams, uh, the, the track record over the last decade is that by the end of the year, you need to have four legitimate starters who can carry you through to the postseason, meaning roughly league average or better. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need guys. You don't necessarily need four dominant guys. That's not the template that has gotten teams to and through the World Series. Uh, but you do need, you know, you do need guys who can give you innings and who can uh, and who can be you know, serviceable at the very least. So. The, the interesting thing, though, is that a lot of teams have made changes on the fly in the middle of the season, whether that's promoting from within and finding an internal answer or whether that's who, meant who, who which, by the way, as we sit here, someone always emerges in the minor leagues. I understand that. But as we sit here, isn't that guy that says, hey, you know what? We're waiting for Matt Moore to come up and save the day in the middle of the year. The Red Sox don't have that guy right now. Um no, they're internally they don't have a lot of guys who are in the upper levels and ready to be and not homegrown guys anyway. I mean that's the interesting thing about all of their minor league mm-hmm. free agents whom they signed the guys like Cook and like Padilla and etc. and and those sorts. Uh, but no, homegrown Wyland was the closest. Uh, he's now gone. Obviously, uh, they feel good. Well, I won't say they feel good, but uh, they they actually feel pretty good about the idea that Alex Wilson could step up and maybe be a spot starter at various points in the mm-hmm. season. But there is uncertainty there. He's a guy who's you know not yet on the forty man roster, but who showed a lot of a lot of progress last year in a starting role. Uh, and then Dubrant is you know whom we alluded to at, you know a little bit before was viewed at that as that guy entering last year, the homegrown guy mm-hmm. who looked like he was ready to be a big league starter. And with last year's injury riddled season, he showed the stuff to be a starter, but he didn't show the the durability to be there and the kind of uh, proper approach and professionalization to be able to. Take an that interesting next step. guy, an interesting guy, and this might be for a future podcast. But um, if we're talking about the construct and them constructing uh, um, a pitching staff, is Tazawa. Tazawa is an interesting guy to me, and. And we can talk about DeBron. DeBron has a lot of potential, and maybe he steps up to be the guy a lot of people thought he was going to be last year. But DeZow is a very, very interesting guy in terms of his obviously healthier than last year coming off Tommy John, um, but also the by all accounts his mentality and and what he brings to the table. And, I, and we, this might be a topic for another day, but if we're talking about names that potentially fit in, whether it's in the bullpen or a wild card in the rotation, maybe him. I, I agree. I think that he will be an impact pitcher at some point. The fact that the Red Sox kept him on their 40-man roster at the cost of you know a good seven or $800,000, which is more than the typical guy with his service time is going to make, um, speaks to how the team thinks that he's going to be an important piece. I just get the sense that they're coming increasingly to the conclusion that he's going to be a bullpen guy, which is why I didn't mention him for the rotation. But I agree that he's going to be a guy who we do see in the major leagues at some point this year and, and you know, in someone whom they hope will be able to make some kind of an impact for them. And, and you, as, as to summarize in terms of how I feel about them coming in their, their strategy with the starting rotation, uh, I think that two guys, not only with the, with the rotation, not only with the pitching staff, but I, probably with the entire team, if you're going to ask me two guys who are the most important guys off of what they've done in the offseason, 
it is Clay Buckholtz and Daniel Bard. Clay Buckholtz has to become a 200 or close to 200 inning pitcher in my mind. At and, least 180. <laughs> right. And he's 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 been good. But this is something that's not on his resume. I'm not talking about 200 innings. I'm talking about consistently close to a 200 inning guy. Right. And then Bard is the other guy who becomes enormously important in my mind because he has something that that these other pitchers don't have, which is the potential, and I want the quote unquote potential to be a top of the rotation starting pitcher. We don't know if he's going to come close to that, but there's not anybody, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's anybody else who has that ability. His ceiling is clearly higher than anyone else's because of, you know, because of the stuff. He's, uh, it's interesting because one time I remember talking to Bart about, uh, about, a, guy, uh, about a guy whom um, the, Mariners were conti- the, the Mariners once considered drafting Bard with, what, the number five or five. six overall pick. They drafted Brandon Morrow. They drafted Brandon Morrow. And so one time I talked to Bard about Brandon Morrow, and he said – and this was in a game when when Morrow was starting for the Blue Jays, and he said, "Yeah, we look at that guy in the bullpen, and we say, yeah, he really looks like a reliever." And it's funny because Bard is kind of you know it'll be interesting to see how Bard plays out because they have similar which, stuff which, in many ways, like the you know the velocity in the middle of the rotation, an underrated three pitch mix, but you know with a lot of uncertainty surrounding how that transition can go. Which you know when we did the podcast earlier this year in the off season, it- self promotion. Yeah, well, you know, I would say it's cross promotion, but it's really, really on the same podcast, so it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> um, but when you ask, okay, what picture do you see yourself like? And I, you would expect him to say, oh, well, you know, I see myself as Tim Linscombe or Clay, Clayton Kershaw, whoever. He said, Brandon Morrow. And, you know, I'm sure that some of that stemmed from the things that you talked about, that this guy has been on his radar for a while. But. Brandon Morrow isn't a guy who you say, oh, well, he made a seamless transition from bullpen to starting rotation. It's still a work in progress, which I think Bard has is, is really come to grips with. Say, hey, you know what? I've seen the lumps that a guy like Brandon Morrow has gone through, and I'm fully expecting some of those lumps. The one other person who we neglected to mention in talking about the rotation equation who's going to be very interesting is Daisuke Matsuzaka mm-hmm. because – uh, especially if the Red Sox have Bard go into the rotation, it may well be that Bard is not meant to stay in the rotation over the full course of the season because, you know, they want to be careful about his workload. There's a, de- there's a decent likelihood that a guy who's, uh, who hasn't been a starter since 2007 is going to have some, is going to at some point see kind of diminishing stuff or fatigue set in. And at that point, the Red Sox could well shift him back into the bullpen where they know that he's kind of an electric arm. Uh, in which case they would need someone to replace him if he does end up in the yeah. rotation, obviously. And that someone could well be someone like Daisuke Matsuzaka. In a perfect world, I think. But as we know, with Daisuke, there hasn't been too many perfect worlds. It's and, more been his own world. Yeah, and, and, and I think with Bard, what they're going to do, and you know this, is that I think they're going to play it by year. And it's, that sounds so general, but really is. They're going to play it by year. You can't say, hey, there's C.J. Wilson. He's he's going to pitch over 200 innings right out of the bullpen, coming off the bullpen, going to starting rotation. You just can't do that. So I think they'll manage things. I think they'll play it by year. But in regards to Daisuke, you know, talking to John Diebel, obviously the guy who scouted him for years over in Japan, he said, "This is people have not seen the guy that pitched at 97. And we heard about that That's guy, true. right? We have not seen him. Right. And and so why was he pitching at 90, 89, 90, 91? Why was he? Well, was it because of the elbow? 
I think we're going to find out. And, and, and we, we have documented proof that guys come back throwing harder. But the, the caveat here, I think, with Daisuke is why everyone is queuing up their stories. Here comes the trade deadline acquisition, Daisuke Matsuzaka. I think the caveat is that he may come back throwing 95, but what is the thing that these guys, after not pitching for a year, have the biggest problem with? That would be command, Rob. Yes, and and what has been Dicegate's problem throughout? That would be command, Rob. <laughs> there you go. So uh, I would I would temper all um, all expectations with Dicegate. Yeah, that would be really exciting if he could, you know, maybe manage to uh, be dominant with seven while walking seven guys per nine innings. <laughs> he's throwing harder, but he's just not over the plate. Um, so, uh, next, uh, you know, so we've talked about the, about the, uh, the pitching staff and how it shapes up, uh, the lineup, you know, I think that the biggest, the biggest, you know, and most, uh, what, what most people found to be the most curious move of the off season was the decision to trade Marco Scudero to the Rockies for a guy, Clayton Mortensen, who really represents only, you know, minor league depth for them, uh, to start the year. So Scudero's gone, Reddick and JD Drew are gone, Lowry's gone, they've gotten, Nick Punto and Mike Avilas to be their shortstops. They have Cody Ross and, and uh, Ryan Sweeney to go into the outfield. Do you think next. when they look at Clayton Mortensen, they look at like the Scrooge McDuck, you know, when he viewed somebody that saw a big bag of money? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, yeah. uh, that, that's quite an image. Sorry. I mean, does he, I, I do they dive some, into it, you know, I, the stacks of gold? I have Scrooge McDuck on the brain. Evidently. evidently. But uh, continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so. How do you see the lineup shaping up? Do you think that they're – it seems to me that they're kind of courting uncertainty at two positions, although the bar isn't necessarily set that high at either position for what they have to replicate if they're to be as good as they were last year because right field last year for them was bad, mostly because of their first-half production when J.D. Drew was not good, mm-hmm. Mike Cameron was really bad, uh, Darnell McDonald struggled until about July last year. They had terrible production from that position for much of the year. And then ended up kind of stabilizing it some with uh, with Josh Reddick, and to a lesser degree when Drew came back. And Mark- McDonald was actually much better than most people realize in the second half. Um, but the bar isn't set that high for them to match that production in right field. At shortstop, the combination of Lowry and Scudero was ultimately okay. Mm. Uh, it it was a little bit better than league average, but not phenomenally so. Um, Jed Lowry, I think, was really hindered by his uh, by his shoulder injury to the point where his production. You know, really dropped to a, a kind of startling degree when you look at the season in context. Yeah. Um, and neither of those guys was uh, Scudero was was great from the stability standpoint and was a reliable defender, but he wasn't a rangy guy. No, he no. And that's you know, a, this wasn't a plus defender. Yeah. Who, and that's the thing about the the argument with Mike Avilas. And I think that to me, one of the things about this spring training, there, there are things to watch. There is some competition. There is some opportunity for guys to step up, and Mike Avilas obviously is one of those guys. And and for me, watching Mike Avilas play shortstop will be one of the more fascinating things because, as you point out, Marco Scudero was a solid defender, but, in your words, not a rangy guy. And can Mike Avilas at least replicate the range at Marco Scudero has. or Jed Lowry, right? You know who started who started probably close to as many games as Scudero at short. Which you know people say, well, you know it's Mike Avilas and he played third primarily. Well, you know people are forgetting that this guy played almost 100 games at short in his best year at 2008. The question is, has he gotten bigger since then, bulk wise? Has he become more accustomed to playing third and second? You know, you talk to both him and Nick Punto, who is I think a better defender, but obviously not uh, but much of a threat offensively. And they're very quick to 
point out that they are shortstops. They view themselves as shortstops. They always have viewed themselves as shortstops, and they have good explanations why they do view themselves as shortstops. So now we're going to find out, are they shortstops? We're going to find out if they're shortstops and if they can if they can perform. I mean, I think that Avila's you know Avila's played well last year in mm-hmm. his limited stretch, uh, for the most part. I, I think that he exceeded expectations because he had been performing not well when he was when he was acquired uh, from the Royals at the uh, near the trade deadline. So I, I do think that that's you know there, I, I think that there's a chance that they could at least replicate the production of Scudero. There's a small chance that they could be better than what Scudero and Lowry were. There's also a chance that they could be worse than you know worse than uh, the condo than, than than the combination was that they had last year. So it will be really interesting to see how it plays out. I do think that they're courting some uncertainty in two different positions of their lineup. That said, I think that the top of their lineup is so good, mm-hmm. especially one through five. That it almost doesn't matter. Yeah, and and the other thing is is that is that you don't have automatic outs, or right now you wouldn't think that. And and you're right. I mean, from one to five, you you think you know what you're going to get, which is one of the best. Whether people want to admit it or not, one of the best one through fives in baseball. If everyone performed. last year, it was trending to be one of the best in baseball history. Yeah, and so if 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 that holds up, then you don't have to worry about the rest. What you have to stay away from, you remember a couple of years ago. I mean, the series in Texas where they had Brian Anderson and and a Jason Veritek who wasn't was terribly offensively, and and I, I can't even remember who else. But you say that last four of that lineup don't have a chance of getting a hit. What you have now is you have guys who. Are, have the capability of turning in some offensive numbers. Jared Saltalamakia, um, uh, the shortstop situation with Avilas, and then you have the outfield situation, whether until Crawford comes back. I think that. And Crawford isn't part of that one through five mix, so there's a chance that no, he could be, you know, a really. Good, no, I know. I'm yeah. talking about the last four guys. Totally. And, and you look at Sweeney and Ross, and while neither of those guys will most likely make the All Star team, they have proven to be. Major League hitters in their own way. Distinctly different hitters, not only because one's lefty and one's righty, but Major League hitters. And I think that that's what you're looking for when you have the, the Kaiba potentially you have at the top of the lineup. I'm, the interesting thing to me is that I think that so much of this Red Sox offseason parallels what the Yankees did last year. Because there were a lot of people who had their doubts about the Yankees entering the 2011 season. They said, oh, the Red Sox have leapfrogged them in terms of, you know, with the additions of Crawford and Gonzalez. Their lineup is going to be so good and their rotation is stacked. And I remember talking to some Red Sox uh, front office guys last year in spring training. They were like, why are so many people writing off the Yankees? Mm. Their core is so good that there's no chance that they're going to fall out of contention. I really feel that the Red Sox are probably a, are, are similarly structured. Now, the rest of the American League might be better than it was last yeah. year, which is perhaps the difference between where the Yankees were a year ago. But in terms of how the Red Sox are approaching their rotation building, where you know they're kind of going for these, they're trying to discover guys for the back of the rotation, as the Yankees did last year with Colon and Garcia, rather than going in with certainties. Uh, there are a lot of interesting parallels between the 2012 Red Sox and the 2011 Yankees, with a, with a couple of notable different differences, such as you know the uh, tumultuous offseason from a front office and stability standpoint that uh, that occurred, and the fact that the Yankees were coming off a playoff appearance in 2010, whereas the Red Sox obviously are coming off of two years not in the playoffs. But I do think that there are a lot of parallels between those two yeah, teams. Yeah, if when to, if you want to talk about a synopsis of how people should view the Red Sox. 
it's people are so oh woe is the Red Sox. They're not as good. They're not the best team ever, like they were proclaimed as last year. How'd well, that go for them? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, they're still one of the best teams in the American League, talent wise. And and maybe even better than people think because if you want to go through the lineup, for instance, you can say, Well, you know, they've upgraded a lot more than they've downgraded and they didn't even need any help there. The biggest thing, as we know, is that it's going to come down to how does the top three perform? I think that that's the, if you want to summarize, why, why did they call it the best team ever last year? Because the starting rotation, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, sure you had Papelbon and you had Bard and you had this great lineup, but the thing that said, put the, on, on the front page of the Boston Herald, the best team ever, was because you had the perception of, a number two starter pitching as number four, a potential of a two or three starter pitching at number five. You had this rotation anchoring this whole scenario. And that's what, and it, as it turned out, the four and five were terrible. Yeah, well, beyond that, I mean, yeah, there were times when, you know, when the three was, when it was difficult to find oh, the three. Which they couldn't, really find, they couldn't have a, find a one and a half. They couldn't find a half. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that once Buckholz went down, that's really that's really kind of you you alluded to earlier how important his offseason mm-hmm. was, and I agree with you entirely. He is the difference maker. If they have three solid starters in in Beck and of course they need Beckett to be the good Beckett, not the really crummy 2010 version of Beckett as well. Which yeah, and we can say it time and time again, but it, for 4 months it was the best Beckett. Last year. Absolutely. So he was spectacular last year. He's had four spectacular months in the 2009 season. And and really even in 2008, he had a run of a few great months as well. Um, 2010 being the one season in which he just tanked kind of uh, from beginning to end. In part injuries, but there was underperformance there as well. But if they can get Beckett, Buckholz, Lester to be really good... You know, above average pitch, above average starters, then everything else falls into place for them. Yeah, best team ever. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. I, I'm not sure that I would that I would go there. Um, so the uh, the last uh, the last question that I'll ask you about for this podcast, looking at the off season in review, what's the most overlooked element of the Red Sox off season, to your mind? Uh, the most overlooked. Hmm. Why don't you go first? I had my own ideas. That's why I asked the questions. Okay. Uh, I, I think that one of the great wild cards that's out there, you know, we've given, uh, we've paid a lot of attention to what Bobby Valentine has been up to this offseason. The arrival of Bob McClure as the new pitching coach, I think, is really a, a, a significant, significant thing because when we talk about all of the different things that, uh, that were going on amidst the Red Sox collapse at the end of last season, so much of it revolves around the pitching staff and the idea that there wasn't leadership that kind of got them going in the right direction, that John Farrell is gone. You know, Kurt Young, a guy who's great at, you know, at working with pitchers on an individual basis, wasn't kind of the same, uh, the same strike fear in their hearts type of leader. Um, and, uh, and so Kurt Young is gone. And Bob McClure now had the offseason task in, uh, after being named the, uh, named the new pitching coach in December, late December, learning the pitchers and figuring out how to work with them in order to be the right guy to lead them and keep them on track. And I think that how he performs with them is going to be huge. He comes with a really good reputation from what he was able to do, working with some specific guys in in Kansas City, helping some guys to take real leaps forward in their careers. I I think, you know, Joaquin Soria is is a great example, but Mm. there are others as well. Greg Holland was another one uh, who he really advanced in his career and made him into a significant bullpen guy. Um, But 
Bob McClure, I think, is the overlooked name of the mm. offseason uh, who's going to have a lot of say over how the Red Sox end up doing. Doctor, putting it all on the, the shoulders of Dr. Rot. I like it. <laughs> um, I think that it, w- the thing that I would identify is just the mindset um, in two different ways. Mindset, number one, whether Terry Francona likes it or not, the mindset of guys being motivated because of what happened last year and and being on I think that was a Freudian slip whether uh, whether Bobby Valentine likes it or not you mean well uh, you know off, off, you know Terry Francona said the other day yeah. night about about how it's it is a shame it I agree with him 100% it's a shame that you know this has to happen you know the guys have to be jacked up about about proving everyone wrong off of doing things wrong but this is the reality of what's going to happen is that that guys are going to be be watching what they do they're going to come in with the best of intentions and not it's just human nature and and that and i think that the red Sox, bobby valentine whoever are going to be the benefactors of this is that everyone's going to come in in shape i would imagine everyone's going to come in highly motivated to succeed after what happened last year and i also think another part of the mindset was is having a couple of these guys be here for another year adrian gonzalez being here for another year and maybe that's that's one of the things that's going to the radar his shoulder right. how much his shoulder wore down no one's talking about that but all of a sudden now he can show up to spring training and start hit right off the bat uh carl crawford i think knowing what to expect a little bit uh those are important guys who had to adjust to a lot of different things on the fly they don't have as many of those quote-unquote important guys who don't know what they're getting into here um and so i think that that's having those guys kind of hit the ground running is important that's uh, that's it for me. That's all right. Do you have well, anything else to no, say? No, no. Thank you, Alex, for joining uh, for joining another episode, episode 201 of the Bradford Files. And uh, we're going to crank some more out as the uh, spring training approaches. Yeah, let's. Uh, we'll, we'll preview spring training and the big questions that are looming. We've talked about some of them, but we'll dig into that a little bit more with the next episode of the Bradford yeah, Files. Yeah, so tune in. Don't go anywhere. Stay, episode 202 y- is y- going to be a barn burner. It's going to be crazy. Keep your car looking its absolute best year-round with 303 Cleaners and Protectants. 303's revolutionary graphene nanospray coating gives you professional protection in a simple, easy-to-use formula. It will keep your car's paint protected for up to 12 months and give an insane level of depth and gloss. You can also use their brand-new 303 graphene detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine throughout the year. It can even be used for quick cleanups of light dust and fingerprints in between washes. For a one-two punch to keep your car licking its best, look no further than 303's line of graphene products. 303 Graphene Nano Spray Coating to protect and 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine. Both products are available now at Advanced Auto Parts, AutoZone, and select Walmart locations. Visit 303radio.com for more information. The difference between an agent and a Realtor is real. Realtors have the expertise to find exactly what you need and the ethics to do the right thing, even when it's the harder thing. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. That's who we are. Over 1 million people have turned to Upstart for personal loans. Our online platform enables fast and easy access to the funds you need. Whether it's for credit card debt consolidation or to pay bills, you can check your rate in as little as five minutes without affecting your credit score. Loans start at $1,000 and go up to $50,000. 
and you may even get your funds in as fast as one business day. Go to upstart.com to check your rate. That's upstart.com. It's that easy. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application.